Hi, I'm Sharon Hunter, and this is Moonstone Connections, a podcast that puts the spotlight on important leaders in the world of arts and entertainment. Through in-depth conversations with people in the arts, we will get a chance to learn about them and how they are making a difference. I am very happy to have as a guest, Matthew Kearns. Matthew is an artist, educator, and community leader. His artistic body of work is multidisciplinary, and some of his favorite projects that he's directed are Christmas Carol, Frost Nixon, The Talking Cure Speaks, Gay Fantasia. We'll have to ask him about that. Matthew is the producing executive director at St. Louis Fringe Festival and director of the Emerging Leaders Program and member relations for Focus St. Louis. He also owns an independent arts company named The Drama Club St. Louis. He was honored to be named one of the 2020 Diverse business leaders by the St. Louis Business Journal last year for his work with St. Louis Fringe. As I said, he is a director, he's an educator, he's taught in different schools across the nation. His students have gone on to careers in Broadway shows, TV, motion pictures. He was also awarded the Creative Ticket National School of Distinction Award from the John F. Kennedy Center's Alliance for the Arts Education Network. A very, very interesting and exciting person to speak with. I'm so glad to have you, Matthew, on the Moonstone Connections podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here. And I'm so glad to get to talk to you. We haven't seen each other in so long. You all aren't seeing us, but we're seeing each other and talking and it's just lovely. I know we haven't seen each other due to the pandemic and it's made it hard for everybody to have that, you know, that connection that we all want to have and we can't have it physically, but at least there's Zoom. Thank goodness for it. (laughs) If only I bought stock in it a year ago. (laughs) No, you and me both, right? Oh my goodness. (laughs) Well, let's go back and let's talk because usually I start this out because I really want to get an idea of you and how you began your childhood where you grew up, what was that like, and were your were your family members involved in theater? Uh, so humble beginnings in uh, Florissant, Missouri, somewhere between Florissant and Ferguson. I'm a mm-hmm. NoCo kid. Uh, half of my family lived in Ferguson; the other half lived in Florissant. We ended up living in my uh, my grandparents. My grandparent, my the Kearns grandparents, had a house built uh, to Melanfi Court. Oh, back yeah. In the way back. Yeah, I know, right? So that area. And they sold it to my mom and dad, and I grew up in in my grandparents' house. So I grew up there, and they moved to a different house, and, you know, pretty standard issue, North County upbringing. I was a Catholic school kid. I played soccer very poorly um, <laughs> to the point where I didn't play anymore. Uh, I played baseball. And I played that. Okay, I would probably be the best sport I ever uh, got into until my later years when more like yoga and marathon running came along. I was much better at those. And uh, then I got to high school. I discovered theater in the fifth grade, Uh, the fifth grade. Yes, I was in the school Christmas pageant and I got to be the lead. And it was probably the most one of the defining moments of my life. My parents were not in theater. My mother is from what I call a plumbing dynasty. Mm -hmm. Uh, My grandfather was a plumber. He owned a very famous plumbing parts store. My mother works for a plumber now, or she's retired now, but she did. Um, And as an office manager, and my father was a truck driver. So 
a kid on the stage was completely new to them. Oh, and, I see. Yeah. And I remember being on that stage in the fifth grade. I'll never forget it because it's an image that's burned in my head. But the stage, I'm saying stage. So it's like those plastic pushed together stages. Sure, of course. We had a paper backdrop and floodlights in the school cafeteria. <laughs> and I thought to myself, this is what I want to do. Other people want to be doctors and lawyers. Not me. I want to do this. <laughs> I agree with you. Yeah. I had the same sort of, I, I had the same upbringing. My, I got it. I got that theater bite in third grade when our teacher had us memorize the entire uh, Cat Stevens album that had Morning is Broken and yeah. Day by Day. So we did uh, for Easter, the whole uh, Apostles and Jesus and I was an apostle and I wanted to be Jesus. So that's when I knew that I needed to be leads in things. I'm sure you had the same feeling. I mean, you know, it, an apostle's great, but when you really want to be the star. Exactly. You, you know, got to do it. It's that what would Jesus do? It's well, <laughs> what would Sharon do to be Jesus? Right. Exactly. You see right. what I'm saying? I Certainly. Exactly. So I got to high school. I found the drama club. I was fortunate to have my first mentor when I was young. His name was Mr. Jim Grummick, and he is now gone. I know. Um, He's directed me in my uh, my senior play at high school. So did you go to Mercy High School? I went to Rosary. Oh, you went to Rosary. So I went to Aquinas. Oh, <laughs> yes. Yeah, I mean, it's which has now merged with Rosary and it's Mercy yes. Aquinas Rosary became the Trinity, Trinity High gone. School. Oh, right. They're Trinity. You're right. I was like, yeah. they're gone. No, they're Trinity. Yeah. You're right. And they're in Rosary's old building. So, so yep, yeah, they're not on my campus anymore. My campus is a uh, Christian school now. Oh, my God. How much I I adored Jim Grummick. Oh, he, he came I mean, over and he directed my senior musical and I we did Bells Are Ringing. I had the lead in that. And I found his son found the card that I had given him with flowers that and gave it back to me when he passed. That's so I very have it. sweet. Yeah, he oh. was something special. Mr. Grummick changed my life. Mm -hmm. And me too. I, I went to his funeral uh, when he passed and it was just so beautiful to see so many people. While I was there, I wasn't there a terribly long time, but while I was there, I saw people that were my age and older and younger that had been touched by him and had caught in the fire of the arts because of him. And that is like the biggest compliment of a life lived is how many people say you thank you for giving me this and showing me this no matter if and i used to say this to kids that i taught all the time no matter if you end up being a patron of the arts or you end up being a celebrity or you end up not doing anything in them but respecting them you walk away with the knowledge of how important this is in our world and in our mm -hmm. society. And that's what Mr. Gromick did for me, for sure. Mm -hmm. And for many, many others too. And his sons have gone on and his grandsons. Yeah, Tim I mean, and Robbie. Yeah, totally. You know, when I, a couple of years ago, when I went back. And to, Dan too. Dan is the principal of Trinity High School, I, I think. So yeah. I went back to do their alumni musical and Tim directed it. And Jim came in several times to watch the rehearsals. And I would sit and talk to him and say, I wouldn't be here without you. I wouldn't, you know, and I was so glad that I got a chance to like, you know, talk to him and spend some time before, you know, it's, it's your mentors that make the difference in your life. 
Anyway, yes. You and cannot as we talk over this next period of time, you'll hear that I've been very privileged to have a lot of really unbelievable mentors. Um, yeah, for sure. So once you got out of high school, then what was the next step? What did you do after that? So Were you in theater in, 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 after that? Every So every step of the way, like, I, I'm not kidding wow. you. It's like, this is what I'm doing. And I went gangbusters to do it. So I, I went to community college out of high school mm -hmm. and I got two associates degree degrees, one in theater, mm -hmm. uh, Donna Spaulding and John Heiger were my theater professors. And, uh, it's funny because I'm on faculty at St. Charles community college now. And so is Donna Spaulding. And the first meeting we had together, I was like, wait, I have to tell you all something. My theater teacher is right here in this room. <laughs> and it was like, here she is, the amazing Donna Spaulding. Oh, my God. Yeah. Is Hydra still around? I don't, you know, I don't oh, know. Oh, man, I had a big crush on him. Those bow ties, man, those bow ties. I had him for <laughs> intro to film. Oh, yeah, he was a big film studies guy. Yes, and he had yeah. a car with his license plate was Amadeus. And I was so... I was like enamored with this man. And I happened to come in just to take a, a film class. And I was just like, this man is just amazing. So just, if you ever run into him. Oh, I mean, I would be thrilled to run into John Hyger. I, mean, I would want to take him and like, be like, let's sit down and drink bourbon and talk about all of it. Oh my God, he's <laughs> the coolest man ever. I, ever. I hope, I hope people know that. Uh, and um, if they don't, they will now. Exactly, they will now. So I got to meet these great people through community college. And I really got a better understanding of what theater arts are. Mm -hmm. So initially in high school, I was like, I'm an actor, I'm an actor. And I pushed to be an actor for a long time. And I've done plenty of acting and I still love it, but I don't call myself an actor anymore. I call myself an artistic workmaker and a creative or creator um, because it really depends on the project as to where I want to, what I want to do, what role I see myself or feel myself playing in it. But that's far, far down the line. If we go all the way back to, uh, St. Louis community college at Florissant Valley, I, uh, <laughs> I spent many years, uh, three years there getting two degrees, one in radio and television and the other one in theater. Um, I had some really great uh, experiences in that theater. I had a great opportunity to fall on my face uh, in the middle of a play, which I thought was uh, the worst thing at the time and the best thing at the time, because I literally fell on my face. Um, it was just really like, there's this guy directing, I don't even remember his name, he was a guest director, but he came in and we were doing this play called The Shadow Box. Do you know The Shadow Box? I remember that show, yes. Yeah, so The Shadow Box is about a cancer hospice. And it's three, it's so very heavy it's, and it was such yes. deep drama. And it was like, oh, this is so like intense and cool. And we did it upstairs in this little makeshift loft space that they had created. Uh, that was a storeroom that, that somebody went, Hey, what if we turn this into a theater? And they did, it was like a 60 seat black box. It was really pretty cool. Anyway, the costumer at the time, I was playing the son of the family. The dad was dying of cancer. The mom and I were there. I know it was like very intense. There were videos with funeral parlors. It was super like multimedia magical. Wow. High tech. Yeah, and this was the 90s. So, <laughs> <laughs> so they, were big they were big boxy TVs. Um, but I, I, she hits me in this scene, the mom, because I smart off. And this, so they stayed, we choreographed a slap. 
And I run off and I have these groceries in my hand. Well, the customer had put me in these shoes that were three sizes too big for my feet. And mm-hmm. as much as I like said, I, I, I they don't fit. They're too big. And she stuffed them like full of like tissue paper. Like yes. here. Yeah, exactly. Well, this shoe slips on my foot. I slip and fall on my face. I hit the fence that is like the back wall of the theater. I'm oh, no. bleeding. The groceries fly everywhere. <laughs> And it's a super serious moment to which this audience is cracking up laughing because it's so hilariously funny. And I'm like, what do I do? What does an actor do? What do you do? I'm in character. Get the groceries and pick them up and huff off. And that's what I did. And we like stitched my little face up with a bandaid and I went back on two scenes later. That was the best way to do it. What else can you do? I mean, you know, if you right. fall, then you got to get back up and act like, oh, well, you know, in character, I just fell and I'm really, you know, I'm upset. Yeah. People <laughs> fall in life. That's the way it goes. <laughs> so once you got out of college, what was the next step for you? Did you stay in St. Louis? I did not. So I spent my two years at Flow, and then I left and went to Eastern New Mexico University to finish my undergraduate degree. Wow. And I got a BFA uh, in performance theater and acting. Sure. And I, when I left ENMU, I went, came back here for a year, and I worked actually for uh, WIBV that turned into KTRS. And I was there during that transition, and I was doing uh, morning drive board operating for uh, Bill Wilkerson, who's now gone, and Wendy yeah. Weiss, and then yeah. for John Carney. And uh, after a year, I was like, you know, I, I didn't, this is not what my calling is. I want to be on the stage. I got to go. So I started doing research. I looked into L.A., I wasn't really ready to do TV or film. That wasn't really what was calling me. Mm-hmm. I looked into New York and to be perfectly honest, New York was very scary to me. It's very mm-hmm. big. It was very far away from home. And I was still so like young. Mm-hmm. And I also looked at Seattle because Seattle had this fringe scene that I had heard about and been reading about and following. And I went and I investigated it and it just didn't feel like that was going to be the right fit. Mm-hmm. And somehow I landed in Chicago. Oh, And yes, so I moved to Chicago and I started working there. I mean, instantly, because there was this beautiful storefront theater movement that didn't matter the size, the shape, the spectrum, the cash flow, any of the things that you think about. What mattered was they were all making art and it was literally in every neighborhood on every other block. And it was so exciting to be a part of. So I moved there in January, the greatest time ever to move to Chicago, Illinois. <laughs> I was just going to say, it's a yeah. little cold. It was it's insane. Yeah. And it was pouring snow when we were trying to move into this apartment. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I was doing temp work. And then I, I talked to a friend of mine and I was like, I don't know how to get involved. And they were like, make a phone call. Because that's what you had to do back then. Because there wasn't email or things of that nature. Exactly. So I did. I I called About Face Theater, uh, which was what uh, Eric Rosen and Kyle Hall had started. And they were products of Northwestern. And mm-hmm. they had started this gay and lesbian theater, this mm-hmm. LGBTQIA plus theater in Chicago at the very amazing and historical Hull House, which is now gone, mm-hmm. uh, the Jane Addams Center. And I showed up and was like, hey, put me to work. And they were like, what? Yes. Okay. You want to be put to work? Great. 
so I started working for the About Face friends and that we, so I think I did five shows there, which I guess when you look at theater time, it's probably like what a year and a half thereabouts. Mm -hmm. And just about then they had remounted, um, uh, dream boy, which is one of Eric's, uh, adaptations of Jim Grimsley's book. And I got to meet Ted Hurl and Ted Hurl. Do you know Ted Hurl? Uh -huh. Oh my gosh. That's, we're going to know a million people. I in know, we are. So, uh, Ted, Teddy and I were, were working on the show together. I was, uh, assistant stage managing and he was in the show. He was playing the dad, which he had, I think he had originated the role if my memory serves correctly. Cause this was the third time they had done the show. And he was, we were talking in the green room one day and he's like, mm, what do you want to do? And I was like, well, I want to be in the theater, but I really feel like I want to teach. I like, I have that calling. And he's like, what do you want to teach math? I'm like, no, I want to teach theater. <laughs> I mean, if you know Ted, you know how smart alecky he is. And, and he was just like, Pfft. I mean, he rolled his eyes at me and he went, okay, thank you. I'll think about that. And two days later, he came back to me. We were at rehearsal and he goes, look, you're young. You don't know anything. And I'm pretty sure everyone in the city wants a job here at this place, but I've put in a word for you and you're going to call this number and you're going to talk to a woman named Mary Ellen McGarry, who's probably not going to hire you to teach a class in the theater department, the Chicago Academy for the Arts. <laughs> it's like, okay. Okay. <laughs> thank well, you. I think. Yeah, really. Thank you. I think. And so I called Mary Ellen. She had me meet her at the Chicago Cultural Center. She was the department chair at the time. Mm -hmm. And I met her there and we sat on the steps of the top floor right outside of it. And she asked me three questions. And the last thing she said to me is, are you sure you want to be in this stupid business? And I said, well, I think it's too late for that now. And she said, okay, then welcome aboard. And I taught a class and then I taught three classes and then I was full time and then the enrollment dipped. And so they had to let the youngest person go. So essentially I got fired because they didn't have the enrollment to keep me. And then in the middle of that year, uh, the head of school at the time, Frank Mastari, mm -hmm. calls me and says, I've decided to reorganize the program and Mary Ellen's moving on. And so mm -hmm. is the rest of the faculty. And I want you to come in and be the department chair. Wow. I was like, what? I mean, I'm 27 years old at this point. And I just like, from that original break from that woman, from giving you that opportunity. Mary Ellen. See, that's the thing. And that's what's so important about this business. It's people giving you an opportunity, people giving yeah. you a break. And, and again, mentors and people believing in you and saying, here, let, we're going to let you, we're going to let you do this. That's right. And that's amazing to become department <laughs> chair at 27, how long were you in that position? So I, he's like, you have to interview. So they interview me and there are two people in the room. This guy named Larry, who's in the last name I can't remember, and Joyce Sloan from Second City. And so I come in with this like stack of books and all this, like I've got this idea. And really what I did and what I've always done anytime I teach, I've made the class that I want to go through that I think is the best training and the most interesting. And I started there because that if I'm interested in it, then maybe I can get somebody else to be interested in it, too. Good idea. And and we had this conversation and 
Frank calls me later in the day after I interview with Jude, Mama Joyce. Sorry, it's going to be hard for me not to call her that. Um, uh, and Larry, and he says, "Okay, we want you to come work here. I'm going to pay you twenty five thousand dollars a year." And I was like, "Hey, wait a minute." I'm making like twenty seven five right now. He's like, fine, I'll pay you twenty eight thousand. <laughs> I was like, okay, <laughs> sold. Right. This is the greatest day ever. There you go. And and I stay. So I stayed in that job. I was there for nine and a half years as the department chair. Did you enjoy teaching? What did you every, learn from your students? Every single moment of it. I still enjoy teaching. I love being in the classroom. I think it is the most dynamic and exciting place you can be as, as an educator and as an artist. Mm -hmm. What did I learn in the classroom? Nine times out of 10, the key to all learning is to have really good listening skills. Mm -hmm. If you can listen to what somebody's saying they need from you and you can really take it in and hear it, you will be able to really inspire them to push their own limits. Mm -hmm. And in any kind of acting studio, that's all I ever try to do is get you to push beyond your own limits. It's not, I don't want you to come to your, my studio and have, try to appease my aesthetic. That's not my job. It's not my job to do anything but give you the tools and help you see the heights that you can reach on your own. Because we all know once you're out into the world, the tools change based upon the project. And the interpretation is expressly up to you. And there's no one else there in those auditions, except you coming to the table with what you think is the best opportunity to see you for the work that you're trying to get. Have the students changed since you began? <laughs> theater, have, the, have theater students changed? Are their needs different? Are they, are, are they different? Yes, of course. Uh, I, I think I would be remiss if I said no. I've noticed my, my oldest students are probably getting close to 36, 37 years old. Wow. Yeah. Um, so I think that there's always some common denominators. And the mm -hmm. thing that's common is the fire in their belly. Right. I'm going to do this. And I know that because I have it. Mm -hmm. And so that is common. The things that have changed is how we learn. There's a lot more of, for me, what I feel is less like teacher student, and it's more just a collaborative effort. Mm -hmm. uh, that's what I've seen in classroom training. And I've also started to understand that students are so much more worldly on their own. They already have those techniques because we have the internet. They just go look them up. They're like, all right, I already know about the viewpoints. I already know about this, 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 and this. So I understand that they have a base knowledge long before I've ever met them. Or if I don't have it the day that I tell them about it, they'll have it two days later. Right. Or 20 minutes after the class. Right. They're quicker and, now. And they're, the, the, the uh, access to information is yep, so much right. faster. So and they know a, more. Yep. Totally. And it's such a benefit because the truth of the matter is giving them the base information takes a lot of time. They get the base understanding. You start playing with it. I believe that that any kind of artist studio is a full contact sport, right? You're right. not in there to book learn. You're in there to be in the game. And so it's like, great, here exercise like day one. I'm like, you're up on your feet and you're doing it because the acting is a habit. And if you can get in the habit of it, you can get good at it really quick because accessing those emotions uh, is hard. It's hard mm -hmm. work. Mm -hmm. But the only way you learn how to truly do it and master it is to do it. All the time. Do you teach now through your company that you have, the the drama club? Uh, I do. STL? Is that I'll where keep, you? 
I'll take private students here and there. Mm -hmm. um, yes, uh, I, I teach very selectively. My drama club, what it will do is it will go into schools um, that we identify as low income and we find people to essentially pay for the teachers to come in and cover the cost of them giving access to kiddos to have arts training and after school theater programming that wouldn't get it otherwise. Right. I was doing that with Chitana before she retired, yeah. Cecilia Nadal, who was wonderful. Um, I, she, I went into Carver Elementary and I taught there for a year be, out of her company. So, and then I taught the students out of her company, or uh, teenage students out of her company, also at, through the library. Um, and I enjoyed it. It was wonderful yeah. because you, you get a whole different feel about, you know, kids from all over and what they're dealing with in their lives, but then what you can bring to them through theater and through the arts. It is. And, you know, it's, it's nothing it like changed. It. it changed my life being able to have the arts in my childhood and it shaped who I am as a human being. So if I can give that gift to somebody else when it was given to me, that's what I want to try to do. After yeah. you um, were there in, at, in Chicago, did you come back to St. Louis and teach or work or did you stay in Chicago for a long, long time? Or I was in Chicago for 14 years. Wow. Uh, I taught at the Academy. Mm -hmm. I did a lot of acting, a lot of directing, a lot of helping start theater companies, a lot of a lot of things and this pivotal moment in my timeline happened because I was a very like uh, hoity-toity like classically trained actor like how dare you look at me with anything but like traditional theater forms and uh, through a friend of mine this woman named Teki Lupnecki I don't know if you know Teki or not mm -mm. but Teki got in touch with me and she was like I would like you I was mm. I was trying to look at the timeline the other day. It was like, how old was I? I was like 33, 34. Techie gets in touch with me and she says, I would like you to come and write a solo performance show that would be performed through my company as a part of the Live Bait Filet of Solo Fest. And Live Bait Theater was a very long running institution. And the Filet of Solo Fest still runs, even though Live Bait has uh, died, uh, sadly. Uh, and I was like, how dare you? How dare you? You ask me to write. I don't do therapy on stage. I'm a real artist. I'm an actor. <laughs> I'm an actor. And then I went and I thought about it. And I was like, this is the scariest thing I've ever considered doing. I should probably try to do that. That's the key. If it's frightening and it's scary, do it anyway. And so I was like, okay, well, what, what do I write about? God, I, I don't know. I've never done this before. So, okay, I was like, set the pen to paper, let's see what happens. And so I wrote this, this solo show uh, about my coming out. I was like, well, I certainly know that. I know this whole process. It was not about the whole port, uh, the whole thing of it. It was about uh, bits and pieces, like you just learned bits and pieces of things mm -hmm. throughout a story uh, that's fabricated for the stage. Mm -hmm. um, but I turned out writing this semi-autobiographical semi tale of my coming out. And it got met with some pretty dramatic success. And I felt pretty great about it. And I was like, okay, I was wrong. This is interesting stuff to like come to the stage with nothing and start to like change your life with it and tell your stories. And 
it really did shape who I am because it really turned me on to experimental art and experimental work. And I will forever love traditional plays and musicals. It's like at my core, it's who I am. Well, sure. But as an artist, I am very deeply drawn to original work making and creating and helping those that do it manifest their 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 artistic expression through these different vehicles. And it was because of Techie and Livebait. And it it went on. I did three three shows during that time with them, which was uh, about five years worth of time, if you kind of parse out when they happened and how long it took to make them. And they were all very deeply personal shows. The first one was about coming out. The second one um, in the, well, whenever it was 33, so early 2000s, I was misdiagnosed as HIV positive. And I oh, was, wow. yeah. And I was told that I should just expect to that I am HIV positive moving forward for the next nine months to a year because it could take that long to uh, seroconvert. And I believed it because when your doctor's office tells you these things, you are like, okay, of course. Oh, okay. And so it was a very long journey. It was very difficult to get through. And I about it was literally about nine months in a friend of mine was like, you're going to go to this new doctor we found. And I mean, I will like Todd Hargan is the doctor of my lifetime. I love him. I'd have his name tattooed on me if I could, if I, if he wanted it, but I, it was fascinating because I went in, I was deeply depressed. I was very upset. It was not sure. a time where you were, it was barely a time is what I want to say where they were just really people were starting to live with HIV, but there was still a very deep stigma about it. It was still, the drugs were still very um, tricky. They yeah, weren't new they, experimental. Yeah. yeah. And they had come further than they had in the early nineties, but they weren't totally there yet. And it was just very deeply, deeply stressful time of my life. And uh, I, I went to see Todd Hargan and uh, he, I go into the room and it's this little, you know, Chicago is small. There's, you know, there's spaces everywhere. This room is the size of my desk. It's so tiny. And he comes in this tall, like dashing man. And he's like, we make small talk and we talk about how we know each other. And he's like, what are you here for? And I mean, I just like start sobbing and burst into tears and I'm like losing my mind. And this man like picks me up off the table and I am not a small kid. And he literally picks me up and wraps his arms around me and just holds me for what felt like two hours while all of this pent up upset comes out of me. And he's like, okay. And it's just about the time the rapid test had been invented because he uh -huh. said to me, how's your insurance? <laughs> I said, yeah, I think it's okay. And he said, good. Cause this is really expensive, but this is going to be over in 20 minutes. So my, my guy's going to come in and take your blood. We're going to spin it through and I'll have an answer for you. And 20 minutes later, he came back and he said, it's all over. Go home. You're fine. Wow. And yeah. It's it is one of the most traumatic events of my life. It, it, it's up there with the death of my father. Wow. And I was just going to say, how does that change you as an artist? Deeply. It changed yes. me it, because it changed me as a human being. Exactly. And. And so I ended up starting, I mean, post all of it and a lot of therapy to kind of unpack how that, what, what and how that did to me and, and the trust issues that I ended up having with the medical community because of it. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I ended up writing this really interesting show 
uh, about the whole experience at the time. Uh, and I called it chicken and chicken is, is an interesting, uh, term in the gay community because chicken is food. It's sustenance that we eat. Chicken also means that you are fearful. Uh, and chicken in the gay community means you are young, naive, and stupid. Okay. And yeah. Yeah. And yes. I was like, okay, Multiple so that meanings. seems right. Right. So I make this piece and every time the HIV or AIDS, the words come up in the, in the dialogue of what was happening, I just clucked like a chicken instead. So it ends up having this kind of like, absurdist bent to it. And it, it speaks to shared meaning. Mm -hmm. The show was, it was very fortunate. The show was a very big hit. It was very mm -hmm. successful and it ended up traveling all over the country. Mm -hmm. And and doing this work that fortunately now is pretty irrelevant because HIV cocktails are so good mm -hmm. and, and it's not a death sentence and mm -hmm. the stigma is, it's not, I'm not going to pretend like it's gone, but it's certainly lessened a great deal to all of our hope and benefit. And we're getting closer and closer every day to a cure. So do you feel like gender equality and gay rights are well represented in theater today? No, I absolutely do not. Tell me why, because you're in it and you know it and you're so involved in it and you're such a leader about it. I really want to know what you think about it and why. I think that we are represented. I mm -hmm. think we are represented and pigeonholed in a certain way. And the authentic stories, like the one that I just shared with you, mm -hmm. is a real time experience of my own. There are many things out there that I wish we would be seeing on stages that were not. I would like us to see the normalization of gay, lesbian, transgender couples. I would like us to see stories that are not about us getting AIDS or dying or being beaten up. I would like to see the whole zeitgeist of what it's like to live this life as an authentic human being. It is one of the most beautiful things that Schitt's Creek did as a television show. Mm -hmm. It had the character of David B. Gay, and it was never an issue right. for anybody. Right. It, it was so normalized. And that's what I want the theater community to get to. I want them to not make us camp and not make us jokey. I want them to, and, and, and I want to say these things, and I want to say they also were giving windows in the television and film industry too. This is the way they could get us on the screen, on the stage, on the television at the time when it, when the pieces were created. So if mm -hmm. you look at Will and Grace, Jack was a, a, a camp. I mean, the character- Stereotypical. Nothing but stereotypical yeah. camp. And it was an accessible way for middle America and beyond to accept us and see us. Now, even I think that actor, Sean Hayes, is like, yeah, he's great. And he did another round of it, but was like, we got to take him further. He's got to become more real. We're real people. Exactly. And we have real great stories that are beyond the big kind of containers that we get dropped in. I agree. And I think it is still an underrepresented image in theater and on TV that we don't just just not make it like it has to be something. Because we don't realize, at least a lot of people don't, that your doctor is gay or your dentist is gay or your no. lawyer is gay. And they're not walking around saying, hey, I'm your gay lawyer. So we don't have that represented so that it's just, this is just life. 
as opposed to we have to put a, a title on it or say, you know, you know, we have to quantify it by saying this person is gay or do you, you, you get what I'm saying? Totally. I absolutely do. I mean, I think the labeling of, of the community is pretty intense and not necessary. You're not, you're just a person. You're a person. That's it. And if you want to, I, I don't mind being identified as gay. It's fine with me. I'm sure. proud of it. I've worked of hard course. to be. Um, I don't like the word queer. Other people do. And they don't want to be called gay. They want to be called queer. So interesting. It, really, it becomes a point. Yeah. To me, I grew up in, and they were all insults, but I, I reclaimed gay for myself and I feel good about it. Mm-hmm. I don't like queer because it has very negative uh, connotations for me. As, that's an interesting, that's an interesting insight into that because I, I've heard, I hear that is like the big word now, mm-hmm. but I grew up in the same way that you did where there were words that were derogatory yeah, that was one of them. And I, I feel a little, you know, when I hear that, because I don't like to think of people, any people in a derogatory sense, just as much as we right. we've talked so much over the last year about Black Lives Matter, and how we are trying to make strides in that. And I, I, I wonder how much you think we could make strides with the gay population, the gender equality in theater, because that's where we're seeing that I think there needs to be also a movement for that, wouldn't you say? I think that we are at this really interesting crossroads mm-hmm. and everything is at a reset right now, everything. And it is an opportunity to bring the full spectrum of diversity to the table Every piece of it and celebrate it in a way that this country celebrates it because as much as as there's so much negativity out there, there's also a lot of people living authentic lives and loving every person in their life and celebrating diversity, equity, and inclusion. Absolutely. The the entire BIPOC movement is so uh, needed. It's so overdue that we are putting focus on that and we are making strides in that direction. But I agree, it needs to be across the board about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Absolutely. And I, let's get into the fringe because (laughs) I want to hear about it because if people don't know about it, they need to know about it and all the things that you've done with it all these years. It's great. Thank you. Uh, so it, 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 like I said, it's it's so interesting. I went to Naropa for graduate school and I went there specifically to study experimental work and be put into an empty room and them say, good luck. I hope you make something interesting. And I ended up that I mean, to me, that is all of this leads up to the container of me being the head of the fringe. So I met M. Piro, who was the founder of this iteration of the fringe. So my fringe that we all know the current St. Lou Fringe is 10 years old this year. We're a decade old. We did it. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> it's a big, 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 big deal. And it's very hard to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but we did it. And I'm very proud of us. Um, the first five, year, the five years of this were led by M. Piro. M. Piro picked up the Fringe after it was asleep for two years. Uh, and the original founder of the Fringe was Ed Reggie. Okay, that's right. So Ed had a fringe from about 2000 to about 2009. And he did it all over town. And he brought in like, it's the same kind of thing that we do every year with the annual festival. Um, And he did it. And then he was like, Okay, cool. I did that. I'm done. 
And two years went by. It was sleepy. And M went to Ed, as the story goes, and said, I would like to resurrect this. Is that okay with you? And he was like, you have my blessing. She made a board. She started a movement. And I, you know, I give M such great credit because M was an amazing community organizer when she was here in her role at the Fringe. She found people and she got them excited about really experimental avant-garde work. And then started to shift away from those terms because she was like, and she said this to me at one point, people don't like those terms. They get scared of them. So we call them independent artists. <laughs> I was just going to say, it, yeah. it, that's important to explain to people what exactly it is, what you do and what yeah. kind of theater it is. Because, you know, people hear fringe and they, you know, what is that? You know, <laughs> right. So the reality of it is it started, it, it has its roots in in theater. Mm -hmm. It started in Edinburgh, Scotland, where you know the Edinburgh Theatre Festival. Well, at some point, um, about 75, 76 years ago now, uh, there were a group of artists that had brought work to the Edinburgh Theatre Festival, and they were told their work wasn't good enough to be in it. Right. So they said, okay, fine. So they literally went to the fringe line of that festival and created their own, which is where the word fringe comes from. And it was unjuried. Un, uh, like unjuried, uncritiqued, 100% do what you want. And it's launched, that festival is probably bigger than the Edinburgh Theatre Festival now, for sure. And wow. it has wow. launched hundreds of festivals across the world. And the whole premise of The Fringe is that you can come into it and we give you a stage and some time slots and you just go. And that doesn't change here. Um, we are, we're what I call a hybrid festival. Mm -hmm. So in my five years time, we really looked at our market. We looked at how we work and what worked for us. We decided we needed to be a hybrid, which meant that 40% thereabouts of our festival is curated. Myself and a collective of people come together. We, uh, look at the works. We, if we have artists that we know that are working on a piece, we invite them in. Um, those are what... <clears throat> excuse me, those are what we call our, you know, your, your kind of hangers on the coat hook. So we can get people down here. So they will take a chance on the more experimental works. The other 60% of the festival comes uh, out of a fishbowl. So you put in an application, which is they're open right now. So people are putting in applications. Um, we put them in a fishbowl and somewhere in late March, we pull them out of a fishbowl and that ends up being the lineup for the year. And the people festival. still submit now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, you can submit tell, all tell the way through. To, to you can submit all the way through uh, February 22nd. But if you're a couple days late, I'll let you in too. Uh, it's com, And there's a, a link for the application. It's a pretty okay. simple application. That's um, good. We are multidisciplinary, uh, which means it can be any of the arts. And we used to say we're performative arts, but really we have some visual arts in there too every year, mm -hmm. uh, which I love. I want that to be the case. Um, and it's your vision, your dream, and your words. The only things that we say no to are hate speech. Oh, if it's right. hate speech or it crosses over into a place where it is uh, taking a turn uh, of any kind of discrimination, then I put my foot down. Uh, but otherwise, the world is your oyster. And we have seen everything from opera to solo performances to burlesque shows to multimedia uh, Jackson Pollock scream fests. Oh, there you go. 
It's, I mean, it's amazing. I mean, you know, that's the, the, <laughs> the I want to tell you, but that, that Jackson Pollock Scream Fest spent two years workshopping at our festival and then moved to Off-Broadway. Oh, we'll see. You see? Mm-hmm. I mean, you've got to do something exciting, right? Totally. Totally. You know, that's how you get the attention. How long does the Fringe Festival last? Like how many days or is it? So that's an interesting question. We were a two week festival and then we were a one week festival. And now as of last year for our first digital digital festival, which we can probably talk about at some point, um, we became 14 days. And this year, as we're going to be a hybrid festival, we'll continue to be 14 days. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I was that was that was what I was going to ask you is how is the pandemic affected you know the fringe but again everything's gone virtual it was very scary at first uh so i have um i have some very dear friends in california and gary is a doctor and uh we were just talking one night and he was telling me there's something bad coming and this was early january Something bad is coming and you have to get prepared for it. And of course, at the time you're like, what are you talking about? Right. I mean, <laughs> like, we'd never heard of anything like this. Right. And of course, you're like, we had SARS. We're fine. Right. We we had this, we, I'm generalizing as Americans, had this false sense of security that we were immune to things like this. And, but he was serious. And I, you know, I mean, I've known the guy a long time and I trust him. So I went to my board and I was like, look. This is the news I've got. Uh, we should probably prepare. It's we're probably not going to need it, but just in case, let's just start thinking about it. And so we came up with six plans. There were six different options for this to happen. And the sixth one being canceled, but that was not going to happen under my watch mm-hmm. because I have a commitment as the leader of this community to my artists to give them space and place and to figure out how to make that happen for them no matter what. Mm-hmm. And And by March, we knew by the time we had done the lottery, we knew that it was going to be a virtual event. And the lottery was virtual, too. Uh, Mm -hmm. We did it over the magic of Zoom. Mm -hmm. And so I reached out to all the artists. I was very clear with them. Some of them dropped out. Some of them said, cool. Some of them changed what they were doing. And we ended up with a really dynamic festival. And I'm going to say this. And then there's this like caveat in there that. In the middle of what was happening and not too far before the festival, um, one of our headline acts, uh, Heather Bird, who is a performance poet, was planning a different piece and she was creating it. And uh, uh, the murder happened of George Floyd. And she called me and said, I can't do this anymore. And I said, "Okay, I understand. And she said, but I'll still do it if you let my writing partner and I write an entirely different piece about what it's like to be young black men and women in America. Mm -hmm. I said, yeah, I'll let you do that. Of course. And they wrote that piece and and shot it in like double quick. And it is, it's still up. You can still watch it through our replay series on the website through Mm -hmm. the end of March. And it is so powerful and so beautiful. And my husband came up one afternoon after I saw it. I was sitting there watching it because, you know, I was watching the works as they came in. And I'm just like sobbing in this like random Wednesday afternoon. And he's like, what? And I showed it to him and he's sobbing. And it's like, it's so beautiful. And that's the power of the fringe and why I so love it so deeply because it is very raw 
and it is very visceral and it is uncensored by somebody coming in and going, no, you shouldn't say that, say that this way. It's, it's the artist's voice at its purest and it's really quite beautiful. Which is theater at its best when it comes from a place of, you know, um, just personal experience yeah. and how much of that is then relatable to the audience. Because, yeah. you know, even if we haven't had the exact same experience as someone, we can certainly tap into the emotion of maybe how it's affected us in our own lives. And it also teaches. It's so teachable. And what I think a lot of times we forget is how much theater has that ability to, you know, to, to, to really inform. Don't oh. you feel, especially with the fringe? Totally. I mean, I've always been, I was taught and raised on the idea that theater is to educate, to enlighten and to entertain. And it can be one or it can be all three. And this is so beautifully shot. You can't take your eyes off of it. And it's so painful to listen to that you you just are like overcome with emotion hearing it. It's really very, very profound. Well, I hope everyone goes to the website and looks at all of the things that you have totally. to offer and yeah. also starts thinking about writing about their own experiences or sending things into you. I think it's important yes. if you have a voice, then then put it to paper and and or or, or get up and start, you know, using that. I mean, it, it's a it's a powerful tool, especially in the day and age that we are in now, where it's really important for people to have a voice and to express the things that they're going through in their lives. But I want to I want to change course a little bit because sure. besides the fringe, you are also with Focus St. Louis. Mm -hmm. And I want to talk about what you're doing now and what's next for you in general uh, as an artist and as a theater leader. So I've always been this guy who has two jobs, apparently. Um, <laughs> I know. I'm the same. I mean, it must, is it a North County thing? I it's think I like, was just taught to hustle when I was young. And I'm like, okay, that's what I'll do. Is it a Catholic thing? I mean, yeah, what right. is it? It's like, how many jobs can I have? <laughs> I, I'm with you. I've always had two. When I was at the Academy, I taught at Loyola for years at the same time. I mean, I've always had two jobs. So it's never been like I haven't. It's ingrained. And I, you know, I don't feel useful if I'm only doing one I'm job. the same way. I what feel like, is that? I'm, what is all this time? I should be doing something. Are you also a Scorpio? <laughs> totally. <laughs> See, yes. so am I. Oh my gosh, when's your birthday? <laughs> November 14th. I'm November 15th. Oh my goodness. Ah! <laughs> I can spot I mean, a Scorpio. There it is. I can spot him. Okay, good. Well, there you go. See, yeah. we're three for three. <laughs> there it is. Um, yes. So... I I uh, had this great opportunity to move over to Focus St. Louis, which if yes. you don't know, it's a leadership organization that's been around uh, 20 some odd years as Focus and then Confluence before that and LSL before that. So really, it's been around since like 76. And we we have a very simple mission. We educate leaders in the region, we connect leaders in the region, and we facilitate important conversations as a neutral convener for the region. Wow. And these are all three things that are very much in my wheelhouse. And when there was talk of me coming over and talk of me uh, starting with member relations, which is what I started with, mm -hmm. um, I, I was planning thought leadership events, which I love to do. I am so interested in breaking, like breaking down the walls of how we look at the arts. So I can see it on the stage. I can see it in experimental form. And I also was like, okay, let's see how we can make events 
in like theatrical events in thought leadership mode and put that to the test through panel discussions and through leadership dinners and through all of these interesting ways to gather people because I'm fascinated with the art of gathering. In fact, so I mean, I'm not kidding you here. I'm going to show you this. It's literally sitting on my desk because I'm reading this book right now. If you don't have this book, it's called The Art of Gathering, How We Meet and Why It Matters. And well, it I, need to, I need to so order that on Amazon good. right now. Yes, it's so good. One swipe, baby. <laughs> right. Why didn't I buy stock in Amazon? What yeah, is that happening? Too. Oh, my. That's all I do. Yeah, the this, truck is, is, this is the mistake we my, made. I we should have been stockbrokers. <laughs> that truck is here every single day. Yeah, that's all I do. Yes. So, so the art of gathering. So we're, we gather people. And then just in the past, uh, not in a couple of months, we decided we were going to do some reshuffling. So I'm still in charge of member relations. But now I'm also um, the program director for our Emerging Leaders program, which is our 22 to 35-year-olds. And wow. I have a lot of experience teaching uh, young people uh, for many, many years. And it's this great ability to connect them to the leaders of the region and get to have conversations and get them in conversation with each other because I think our young community is the saving grace to this place. I think that they are gonna come to the table and they are coming to the table and saying, I want this, I want this, we need this, move this direction. And it's going to make us stronger than we are. I mean, think about um, the exciting new company that uh, Jason is working on, Jason mm -hmm. Hall. Mm -hmm and how that conversation is already starting to pivot us in a new direction. And we can just go further with our young leaders and I believe in them so much and I believe in the work of focus. So we're a neutral convener. We don't take a position on anything except for, uh, except for race. We don't, we believe that there should be diversity, equity and inclusion at all levels at all times. Is it easy for people to become involved with Focus St. Louis or to become, you know, part of the, uh, of the whole, what you do is that, is, is. that an, that's good. Cause I have students now I'm teaching at Maryville university. So I, and I'm so impressed with these young people. They right. are, they're just, they're yeah. amazing. And I, and I find that, you know, I want, my only goal now is that I want to see them succeed. Yeah. I want to see them fly. And, you know, like you said, Jim Grummick would be proud of us because we have become mm -hmm. mentors. And That's a really big compliment. Thank you for saying oh, that. Absolutely. That is what you are. That is what you are, Matthew. And I mean, talking about the things that you're doing, the, the effect that you're having on young people today who are going to go on and become leaders tomorrow, that's what you're doing. So yeah. that, that's, that's, it's a big thing. How would so young people get yeah. involved with you and what you're doing? Uh, so this cohort that's just starting is about 30 people. Um, and myself and, uh, the director of learning Shayla Ford is with us too. And, uh, yeah, it's going to be really exciting. I was just programming some of it today and it's, again, it's this like, what would I like? Okay. I would like to know this person and this person and this person. And then I want to know how this works and this works. And I'm like, so let's see. And I've done this really interesting thing with Shayla. We've talked about it. We've laid out all the materials on our virtual campus and said to the gang, even like before we start, cause we don't start till next week. Here they all are because everybody's schedule is so different right now because of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. I'm like, go research, whatever you want, go look at all this binge, watch this if you want to and or take it one little bit at a time whatever your investment is and can be that's what you should do 
And I feel like that's the, that's another big change in learning. Instead of this, like, this lesson is this, this lesson is this. I'm like, here's the information. You take it in how you need to take it in. And I have this firm belief that I'll bring speakers to the table and we'll have conversations. But I also have a watch it, listen to it, read it section. You can buy a book. You can listen to a podcast. You can watch it on Netflix, whatever it takes. Yeah, <laughs> because everybody's a different kind of learner. That's very true. And it's become... It is tricky now because so much is done virtually. I mean, yeah. I'm teaching these classes on Zoom and it's yeah. it's it's a new it's a new frontier. Now, for me, it's easy for me because I I worked in radio for so long and so for me it's almost like I'm back on, you know, the air when I'm teaching them on Zoom. For some reason, it I I yeah. love it. But some, but most people are maybe not as comfortable. Some and the students I don't think are as comfortable because of course they want to be with their friends. They want to have that inter interaction and energy. I mean, do you find that you're you're finding that same situation with people when you're working with them that way? I mean, I think I find a there. I find so much with all kinds of people. So mm -hmm. some people I think are like that. I think some people are thriving in it. They yeah. like being able to turn the camera off and do six other things while they're doing it because that's what they know. Right. Um, I, I think that every person who is a parent who's become a parent teacher has expanded their skill set for as difficult as it has been. And I know plenty of moms and dads out there who are teaching their kids now and it's hard. Mm -hmm. And they're doing it because this is their part and this is what the commitment to their kid is and to our country. And so as difficult as I personally think that it is to be at home all the time and I miss our lives in, you know, the way that we knew it previously, I also think it's incredibly important that I do my part and try to inspire myself and to inspire others to make this okay. Be like, you know what, this is cool and we're going to be cool with it for a while because we'll get through this together. If people want to look up stuff about Focus St. Louis, what, how would they do that? Like, what's the uh, focus-stl.org? Okay, because I, yeah. I think it's I think it's wonderful what you all are doing. Over oh, thanks. There yeah, making a change for St. Louis in general. And it's it you know it takes this deep dive. All of all of the programs do this. They take these deep dives into the different sectors. So there's an arts day and there's uh, there's a healthcare day and there's a civics day. And I mean, you name it, they're doing it. And it's so, so wonderful because our leaders are connecting to each other mm -hmm. and we have this vehicle to have discussion. And I think if any of us have learned anything in the past couple of years, talking to each other is the key. Like having a conversation that's respectful and thoughtful, but authentic is really the key to how we, how we connect. Do you think it will be easy for theater to come back live with this pandemic? Or do you think it'll come back almost as a hybrid of where you'll have live, but also virtual or have both? So I think it's going to be hard to come back because I believe in consumer confidence. Mm -hmm. And I think in the same way, when the economy goes south and people don't trust to buy a car, People are going to have a vaccine and go, OK, cool, I'm just going to wait because I need to see what's going to happen with that. So I'm not going to go to that concert or I'm not going to go to that play or I'm not going to I'm not going to. And they're out of the habit of it now, too, which mm -hmm. is also not great for us because people are out of the habit of going to these kinds of events. 
Um, will it come back? Yes, we've survived since the shaman and the campfire. So <laughs> we'll we'll make our way back eventually. I agree. I we were talking about this at the task force meeting yesterday, and there was a feeling of having a, a, a belief that it will come. I mean, it's definitely going to come back. It's just it'll come back, and it may look different. And That's and right. and there's that feeling of and somebody said yesterday having live but also having virtual at the same time i think you're going to see it. you know it so that everybody can yes. come and enjoy together i must have been a fly on the wall in that conversation yesterday yes. because i have been thinking about this nonstop. i'm like i'm waiting for like let's imagine this big big bus and truck tour show coming in and the star is on a screen and they're in new york yeah it's gonna happen yeah <laughs> i think I yeah. think so until there's complete confidence that we are, you know, ready to to be all in a studio or a theater yeah. together and and but I do believe, I mean even with the vaccines we'll still have to be masked. I mean we'll still have sure. to Yeah, have, for sure. you know, uh, distance. I th I think that's understood by everyone. It's just how it's going to look and is it financially viable for yeah. everybody to have a small audience? I'm proud to be, uh, we are, we the Fringe are one of the original residents of the Kranzberg Arts Foundation. Right, right. And um, it's, it's a great honor to be a part. We, we love Ken and Nancy and we definitely love Chris Hansen and what he's done, what they've done as, as a collective. But he's been working very hard to hope, hope to prepare us all for this, for the returning. Absolutely. With the Missouri yeah. Arts Council. I mean, they've done yep. an amazing job of, yeah. of getting everything up to speed and, and, yeah. and making sure that they take into account all the safety measures, yep. and procedures about the venues. Yeah, it's it. They've been at the forefront and it's it's amazing. Um, and I, I have no I have no qualms about going back to a theater. And I think a lot of people are, you know, they want to be back. I do. I'm not yeah. ready to go back. Oh, I, I, I listened to a, a radio show the other day. I think it was an NPR interview. Uh -huh. um, and this person who was being interviewed said, I want you to close your eyes right now. And I want you to imagine yourself in the biggest packed house of a concert venue right now. Can you do it? And he stopped. And you, I, I was like, whoa, I didn't thought about that in so long. And mm. he said, we've all been traumatized. All of every one of us have trauma and we're going to have to take our time and figure out how to work through that trauma. And it's going to be different for every person. I think that's true. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I don't think I've ever really given myself a moment to like close my eyes and really think about it. I mean, I wouldn't mind, I think maybe entertaining the thought. And I know that when they've mm -hmm. done the surveys, a lot of people have said they really want to be back, yeah. you know, with a live audience. But then again, there's a lot of people that are just not ready and, and that should be honored. That's yeah. why I think that it has to be a hybrid situation as yeah. we go forward. And so we're planning the festival this year. We'll have virtual components again. And well, and frankly, we'll have virtual components moving on because sure. much like when, you know, paint was invented, this new invention <laughs> is never going away. And so there will always be a spot for it in, in the side like guys. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's like, it's like paint. Zoom is paint. 
<laughs> that's, um, that's a great analogy. But we're also. Uh, are you going to have people at all in in the audience? We're, oh, we're, we're going to do um, a couple with the with with Kranzberg Arts Foundation. We're going to do a couple of outdoor venues. Okay. Um, so we've committed to being outside and like you said, uh, between the Missouri Arts Council and the Kranzberg Arts Foundation and the others who are on that task force and yourself who started the task force, everybody working together. Um, it's going to be a nice, safe experience and it's going to be, um, it's going to be really powerful and it's going to be really emotional and hard, uh, and really hopefully joyful because we'll be past a very dark time of our existence. None of us who are alive right now will ever forget this period of time that we've never, never. This is the hardest thing that I think the majority of people have gone through. I mean, even my mom and I, she's very wise. She said, you know, even when we were going through world wars, she said, even when we were going through the most difficult times ever, we had theater that we could go to. We yeah. had movies we could go to. We could go out to dinner. She said, and, and, and for that time period, you were with other people and you felt community and safe and joy and you'd laugh together and you'd be all in a room. And she said, but this year, we haven't had any of that. That's and right. so this is, this is, I hate to use the word unprecedented, but it really is. It's totally different. It is. Than- than anything any any of us have ever gone through or experienced. And, 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 and that's the thing. We are slowly trying to emerge and come out of this, but thank God we have each other and we're together. That's right. And I'm proud of our community because oh, our community yes. on so many levels has not just come together to gather, but they've come together to forge art and find ways to bring art to people in the safety of their own homes during all of this time in ways that... You, you know, one of my favorites is the the last last year's festival. Um, this artist was uh, performing out of the closet in the main bedroom. They had turned it into a studio to do their solo performance. Wow. That's wow. commitment. That's power. And that's See, love is, of community. It's true. And I and I agree with you. I have to say that the, including yourself, the St. Louis theater community, the creativity and the innovation and the, the enthusiasm and the energy that they have put forth to make things still continue and to go forward and to have this positivity of, of, of saying, we're going to make this work because as artists, we have to create, we have to yes. express ourselves. And, and and you know that firsthand because you do that every day. And unfortunately, so does my husband who I drive nuts. He's like, shut up. <laughs> I can't, I can't do it. I have to move and dance. He's like, shut I, up. Exactly. We have to move and dance. I mean, come on. It's, this is how we do it. So, so what do you think is next for you? Let's, let's, I want to hear what your thoughts are. What do you want to do still? I mean, you've done so much. Well, I I want to continue to be a creator, hopefully until I am not of this earth anymore. And uh, maybe wherever I go to the next place, I get to be one there too. Um, I, I think that my goals are to continue to further our community mm-hmm. in the arts, mm-hmm. um, further the commitment of, of new budding uh, voices and artists. I have that commitment and it won't probably ever go away. And the other thing is to hopefully be in a lot more theater and film and 
whatever comes along. I, I've never really say no to things. If I if it's interesting to me, I'm like, yes, I'll do it. I don't really care if it's a radio show or if it's a musical, but I would just like to do more. Now, yeah. now I'm at a point where I'm ready to go and, and jump back into the world and play. So I think there's the answer. I want to play. Creatively, would you act more or would oh, you sure. direct? Yeah, all of that. I just yeah. I just did an eight minute Christmas carol. So that what you said heard in my bio, I created an adaptation that's a solo performance that's eight minutes long of the entire show. Oh, where's the, <laughs> is that going to be? Are you going to put that out there? Is it's it, out. Or, yeah, oh, it it's out. Okay. You can Tell go us where. Um, it's probably on, oh, it's on the fringe Facebook page. Oh, good. Uh, Cause we sent it out as our holiday card, but yeah, I play all bajillion characters in eight minutes of time. And I worked with this filmmaker named NATO and we did this really great, uh, just a little eight minute piece that I adapted. And it's, it's really, for me, it's the beginning of starting to come back and, and be more known, uh, what I started out as, which is an actor and a director mm -hmm. and a creator. Um, that's fantastic. So I, again, this has been a wonderful time talking to you, getting to know you better, finding out we're both oh, Scorpios and we have ah. birthdays next to each other. I mean, just fan fantastic. I mean, Matthew Kearns, again, is producing artistic director of the St. Louis Fringe. Uh, what is your title again at Focus St. Louis? Uh, I am the director of Emerging Leaders and Member Relations. I mean, and, and educator and, and again, mentor, and uh, you make St. Louis proud. Matthew, thank you so, thank you so much, much. That's for a being, very nice compliment. Thank you. For being with us. I am so, so happy to have this time with you. I'm happy too. Well, that's our show. Thank you for joining me. Be well, be safe, and be good to each other. I'm Sharon Hunter. Until next time on Moonstone Connections.